Let's continue our time of worship by opening our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's on page 228 in the Pew Bible. That song you just heard the choir sing is taken from David's prayer in Psalm 51. David wrote roughly half of the 150 psalms, which the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon referred to as the treasury of David. That there are a treasury of songs and prayers and hymns and pleadings with God that will enrich our souls because they are as viable and relevant today than they were as they were 3,000 years ago when they were first written. Uh, Steve Lawson, in his introduction to his two-volume commentary on the Psalms, said the Psalms have been a bedrock of comfort and a tower of strength for believers in every experience of life. From the soul-stirring heights of praise to the heart-rending depths of despair, the full range of human emotion is captured in these magnificent anthems. And I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I either wanted to just be uh, so full of praise to the Lord, but didn't know how to express it, or I was so down and discouraged and uh, feeling defeated, I didn't know how to articulate those words. But when I opened up the Psalms, what a joy it was to pray in confidence God's own word to Him. And we're going to see today as, as David goes through very discouraging, distressful, even desperate circumstances in his own life, he writes some of the greatest psalms being led by the Holy Spirit, not only for his sake, but for our sake today, 3,000 years later. You might remember that over the course of the last few chapters here in First Samuel, David has been on the run from King Saul, who wants to kill him. The Lord has preserved David's life, but has also allowed David to suffer many losses. At the beginning, he loses his position. He goes from being a military commander over King Saul's army to becoming a fugitive from King Saul himself. He loses the company of those who are closest to him his wife, Michael, his spiritual mentor, Samuel, and even his best friend, Jonathan, the son of Saul. David experiences, experiences all these losses, and yet Saul continues to hunt David down. And as Saul hunts David down, as we will see today, David is moving from place to place. And as he moves from place to place, he's becoming all the more desperate until he winds up in a cave. And yet even in that dark, dank, dismal place, the Lord is still with David, protecting him, preserving him, sustaining him. And the Lord does the same for his people today. Even in their most desperate moments, the Lord doesn't let go of his servants. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what circumstances all of you are going through, but I pray whatever those dis, uh, circumstances are that might be discouraging you, that might be trying your faith, that might have you down on yourself, that might have you doubtful about the future, that might even have you 
feeling like you are in desperate straits, I pray that this truth would grip your heart this morning and encourage you to run to Christ. Even in their most desperate moments, the Lord never forsakes his servants. I want us to see how this played out in the life of David. The New Testament tells us that the things that were written beforehand in the Old Testament were written for our instruction, for our encouragement, so that through the Scriptures we might have hope. We might have that confident expectation that God will always make good on His promises. God will always be faithful to His people. So let's look at 1 Samuel 21. That's where we last left off, the end of 1 Samuel 20. Actually, the last sentence of 1 Samuel 20 in the Hebrew is the first sentence of chapter 21. It says this, And he, that is David, rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. You might remember Pastor Mike preaching on this passage last week. This is David and Jonathan tearfully parting ways. And, and as they do so, Jonathan goes back to his home in Gibeah. We're told that Jonathan departed and went to the city, whereas we're told that David simply departs. He simply goes away. And there's a, there's a strong point being made here because Jonathan has a home to go back to. But David has nowhere to go. David is now in exile. He is a fugitive from King Saul. He is on the run from Saul. But everywhere that David goes in chapters 21 and 22 and following, we will see that the Lord is with him. The Lord is watching over him. And more specifically, each place that David goes actually has a God-appointed purpose. David may feel as if he's on the run, which he is in a sense. But God is also fulfilling his good purpose for David. So let us consider these different places that David goes to. First of all, Nob, which is the place of provision. Nob is the place of provision. Look at 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 9. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, 
Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword or my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, then take it, for there is none like that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Nob was a few miles southeast of Gibeah, the hometown of Saul. So David is not very far away from his would-be killer at all. It's about two miles north of Jerusalem. And this is probably where the tabernacle was located at the time, which would uh, give us, you know, the obvious reason why the priests were there. But Ahimelech the priest trembles when he sees David because he's alone. And something just seems off. Something's just not right. I mean, this is the king's son-in-law. He's the commander of the army, and yet there's no royal entourage with him. Why is that? And so we ask David, trembling, uh, why are you alone? And David makes up some story saying that the king has sent him on a secret mission and and he didn't have time to pack and he's gone to meet his men in a certain place and so he needs food and weapons. He tells Ahimelech to, to scrounge up whatever food is there so that they can eat. But the only food available is the holy bread that was used for worship in the tabernacle. Now this is significant because the holy bread consisted of 12 loaves which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were placed on the table of presence in the holy place in the tabernacle. It represented the people's presence before God and God's presence with His people. That bread was available and it was called again the bread of the presence because it represented the people's presence before God, God's presence with His people. And that bread had just been replaced with fresh loaves. And so David was welcome to have what we might call the day-old bread, right? To take with him and to feed his men. In addition to food, David asked for a spear or a sword, saying the king's mission was so urgent, the secret mission that Saul had sent him on, which we know really wasn't at all the case. David just made that whole thing up. He says, I didn't have time to pack my own weapons, a spear or sword or anything else, so, so give me, what do you have here? And Ahimelech helps him out by giving him the sword of Goliath. And the indication is, is that we know that when David killed Goliath, you might remember that he had put Goliath's sword in his tent. But apparently at some point, David dedicated that. He gave the sword to the tabernacle, probably as a token of honor to the Lord for giving them the victory over the Philistines that day, a battle that is recorded back in chapter 17. But David takes that sword, uh, asking Ahimelech for it, And this help that Ahimelech is offering to David is going to cost him greatly, as we will see in the next chapter. Horrific consequences will result from this scheme of David deceiving Ahimelech and getting this food and weapons from him. And in between David's request of asking for food and asking for a weapon, we come across this interesting statement in verse 7, smack in the middle of the passage. Did you catch it? An observation. 
Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. That's all we're told at this point. But in the next chapter, we're going to see the horrific consequences that result from his presence there that day. David deceived Ahimelech, probably so that the priest could plead ignorance if he was ever accused of aiding and abetting the king's enemy. The text doesn't justify what David did. It simply tells us what he did. But I think we can understand at least sympathetically where David is at. I mean, he is on the run from the king who's just a few miles away that is out to kill him. And in his desperation, he has no food. He has no means to protect himself. And so he fabricates a story in order to get the priest to help him. And he fabricates the story probably at least in part so that if the priest were to be questioned, he can legitimately plead ignorance that he didn't know that David was on the run from Saul. He could legitimately say, he told me that he was on a secret mission from the king. David is not looking to get Ahimelech hurt. He only wants Ahimelech to help him. Still, we need to ponder this, and the next chapter will bear this out. David doesn't stop to think about his actions, how his actions will put others in jeopardy. He is being impulsive rather than prayerful. And it's going to have gruesome consequences in the following chapter. Have you ever done something that was impulsive, that cost you greatly, but you thought it was a really good idea at the time? That was the case with David here. That's what David is doing. But I want us to see what God is doing at Nob. What is God doing with David and for David here? The Lord is providing for David, isn't he? The Lord is providing David food. The Lord is providing David weapons. God gives David his daily bread. In this case, it was the holy bread, the bread of the presence, which sat on the table of presence in the holy place of the tabernacle as a reminder, as a, as a quiet witness that the Lord is with his people, that God provides for his people, that God's people are always in his presence, and that God is watching over them. Some might say, well, David just lied. He doesn't deserve this provision. Brothers and sisters, do we really want to go there? <laughs> David doesn't deserve this daily bread because he just lied. He just sinned. He just did something stupid and impulsive. What if we were held to the same standard when it came to our daily bread? I dare say that some of us might starve to death. Many of us would look like skeletons if our daily bread depended on our spiritual consistency. I appreciated the one commentator who said, the reason I have daily bread is not because I am godly, but because God is gracious. We want to be godly. We're followers of Christ. We want to be like him. But in the end, the reason we receive anything good is because God is gracious to sinners like us. 
Even the weapon that David takes, the sword of Goliath, wasn't that a visible reminder of God's empowering presence? When someone that seemed insurmountable stood before them and defied the Lord and, and seemed to be an unwinnable situation, God brought about a great victory that day. And, and the sword of Goliath there uh, at the temple where people worship God, there at the tabernacle, rather, was a visible reminder, a visible token of the great victory that God had won. And that weapon should have reminded David that the Lord is able. The Lord is with him. Just as God granted you victory back then, the Lord will grant you victory in this circumstance that you're facing now. You may be going through a difficult trial feeling discouraged about your situation, perhaps even a sense of desperation. But I would ask you, are you still having food every day? You still got clothes on your back? Do you still have a roof over your head? We live in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world and so often we mistake our needs for once if we would remember the food on our table the clothes that we wear the roof over our head they're daily tokens that god has not forgotten us that god continues to care for us no matter what other situation we might be going through the lord looks after his own and yet david in his hurry in his sense of desperation at times lost sight of this he resorted to human wisdom to his own underhanded tactics by lying to the lord's priest and this just goes to show us that the best of men are men at best we all have feet of clay and in this case david's feet took him from nob to Gath. Gath is the place of panic. Look at 1 Samuel 21 verses 10 to 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? King Achish provides a little bit of comic relief and <laughs> what is others kind of a, a sobering passage. He says, in essence, I've got enough crazy people around me already. I don't need one more. Get this guy out of here. But apart from this humorous response, the scene is rather pitiful, isn't it? David's already lost his position, his wife, his spiritual mentor, his best friend, and now here he loses his very 
dignity. And David loses it out of fear. The songs of praise that women sang to celebrate his victory over Goliath must have become pretty popular. I don't know if they had like the Judean pop charts of the day or anything like that, but uh, apparently they were known as far away as Gath, the hometown of Goliath, where the king of the Philistines also lived, Achish. And when the servants of Achish quoted the lyrics to the king, is not this David? Isn't this the guy about whom the women sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Talking about ten thousands of Philistines. This is a guy that killed our champion, Goliath, and he's here. David was probably thinking, well, Saul will never look for me in Gath, in the enemy's territory, and, and maybe if they recognize me as the mighty warrior who killed Goliath, but now sees me as perhaps being a help to them, maybe they'll provide some sanctuary for me, so to speak. We're not sure exactly what David was thinking, but he's acting very impulsively. He's panicking. And whatever he hoped to gain from going to Gath now comes crumbling around him as they recite the very lyrics that celebrated his victory over Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. If anything, this would remind them of the terrible battle that they had lost and infuriate them and say, now it's all of us against this one guy. Let's get him. So David panics. And as they're quoting the lyrics, it's interesting what verse 12 says. It says, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king. As soon as I saw that verse, you know where my mind went? I immediately went back to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Remember when Goliath, when David went to the battlefield to check on his brothers, and Goliath stood up as he did before and defied the Lord and challenged the armies of Israel? You might remember when we studied that passage, there's a verse in there that simply says the simple sentence, and David heard him. And what was David's response? Not, he wasn't afraid, he got angry. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And David goes out and kills him. He wins the battle with God's help. On that occasion, it says David heard him, but David didn't take his words to heart. David boldly confronted Goliath with the truth and then backed it up. But on this occasion, we're told that David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king. What was the difference? What was the difference between the courage David had when facing Goliath, their champion, and the fear he exhibits now, the cowardice before King Achish? Brothers and sisters, mark it down. The difference between courage and cowardice is faith. Whether we're trusting in the Lord or whether we're trusting in ourselves. Let's face it. Don't we waver between the two quite often? Faith and fear. We're filled with faith one day, filled with fear, worry, and anxiety the next. In fact, forget the day. It can be even times on the same day. 
In the morning, you're having your devotions. Things are going great. You're singing to the Lord. You're building confidence in His Word. You enjoy a good time of prayer. And then it can be just an hour or two later, you're facing a situation and you begin to worry. You begin, you get anxious about things. Perhaps you even begin to panic or you get afraid of something or someone. David was no different. He was a human being just like we are. He loved the Lord, but he wasn't perfect, not by a long shot. I found it interesting that David wrote Psalm 56 when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So this is a psalm that was occurring right when this happened. And I was trying to reconcile the psalm with the account here in 1 Samuel 21 because when I read Psalm 56 where David talks about his enemies trampling him and attacking him all day long, he then says in the psalm these words which many of you have heard, when I am afraid I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? This I know that God is for me. And then David later on in the psalm repeats what he says earlier. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? But then in fear, as he's in literally the the, the hands of the enemy, David feigns insanity in order to escape. But I'm reminded we fluctuate like that all the time. In a given moment, we're like, hey, God is for me. What do I have to be afraid of? God's got this. God's going to take care of us. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Then we find ourselves in a given circumstance and our faith just melts away like the wicked witch of the West when she gets water poured on her. And you feel like you're melting away and that things are not going to work out and God's not going to be there for you. Your head says one thing, but your heart says something else. And David, in this occasion, took these words to heart. Every believer battles fear. The strongest Christians at times waver in their faith. David was no exception. And this encourages me. As I thought about David's not only discouraging situation, not only distressful circumstances, but desperate. You may be in a time like that right now, or maybe you can think bad on a time and say, you know, we've been through some rough waters, but I remember this time was really rough. My mind goes back to about 20 years ago when I was in a really rough spot in ministry going through some really distressful times, both me and Ruthie. We had some handful of folks in the church that just, for whatever reason, couldn't stand us. I mean, we're pretty likable people, aren't we? (laughs) But I mean, when I said they were out to get us and out to get rid of us, I mean, I had one former elder that stood up at a congregational meeting yelling, pointing his finger at me, and accusing me of preaching a different gospel. Yeah, whoa. And the icing on the cake? He was our next door neighbor. Another elder 
I told him I, I felt like I had the opposite of the Midas touch. Whatever I tried to do, it was like always wrong in his eyes. I, I couldn't do anything right. And I said, brother, what is the problem? Do you think I'm ungodly or incompetent? He said, both. It was a rough time. And around that time, we got away, saw some family. And on this trip, we were with my younger brother and his family. I have a few brothers. I was with one of them. And we must have gone out to run an errand together because I remember we were alone in the car. This is almost 20 years ago. And he was aware of the situation we were in. And he knew that we were struggling and deciding, do we leave, stay? You know, what, what, what do we do? What's going on? And I could relate to this struggle because I remember taking a walk and thinking about Psalm 3, and and I'm not going to sing it for you, but I even made up a little tune in my head so I could sing this to the Lord. I would say, um, Lord, how many are those who rise up against me? How many are those who say of me there is no help for him in God? But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory in the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke because the Lord sustained me. I will not fear ten thousands of people who have gathered themselves against me all around because the Lord is with me. And I remember singing that and I remember praying that and I'd be filled with that, that faith and that confidence and then an hour later I'd get another email or another letter, another phone call, another confrontation and I would, again, I'd just feel my faith almost melting away. Well, I was with my brother on this occasion, and he, he knew what we were going through. And he says, uh, this song came out, that, and I heard it, and, and I thought of you, and I want to play it for you, hoping that it will encourage you. It was by a Christian band that I had never heard of at the time. They were fam- uh, fairly new. And the Christian band's name was Casting Crowns. And the song that he played for me was The Voice of Truth. And in that song, it actually refers to the story of David and Goliath and, and the lies of the enemy that tells us, that reminds us of our failures and say, you'll never win, you'll never win. But then the chorus, but the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth says, do not be afraid. The voice of truth says, this is for my glory. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. And that's the call to every Christian. Are we going to listen to the voices of our foes around us, the the voices of our circumstances? Are we going to listen to our own fleshly voice that reminds us of our failures and our mistakes and and the stupid, impulsive things that we've done when we've made a mess of our lives? Or will we listen to the voice of truth? That's always the choice for us in any given moment, on any given day. And that's what I needed to do. I needed to listen to the voice of truth. That's what David needed to do. But on this occasion, in this moment, In this desperate hour, David was a mix. He was fighting for it. But at least momentarily, he took the enemy's words to heart and he was greatly afraid. David faltered in his faith. 
and he gave way to his fear. He panicked and pretended to go crazy, carving gibberish on the city wall, foaming at the mouth, spit dripping down his beard. The guy that had killed Goliath. In his desperation, he lost his dignity. And he was driven from the king's presence. Get this nut out of here. Wasn't David a representation of the God of Israel? Would you agree that he was a pretty poor representation on this occasion? A foaming at the mouth fool? Get this guy away from me. I have enough crazy people around me. Maybe you found yourself in a desperate circumstance and done something foolish, embarrassing, something that you would say, yeah, that was, that was beneath me. I've done some things that I'm ashamed of. Yet I want to encourage you because Scripture shows us that God is merciful to us even in our foolishness. God is the ultimate king who never drives his people away from their presence. The king of Gash said, get out of here. And the king of glory says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God remains faithful even when we're foolish. In fact, the Lord at times will put us in desperate situations, perhaps for no other purpose than to drive us to himself. And that's what happens next as David goes from the king of Gath to the cave at Adullam. And this is the last point we're going to cover today. We're going to cover the last two places next week. The third stop is the cave of Adullam. We read at the beginning of chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. David hits rock bottom literally. <laughs> winds up in a dank, dark cave. But would you agree that sometimes you have to hit bottom before you finally look up? And that's what happens here with David. It's in this cave that he calls upon the Lord. And his words are recorded in Psalm 142. Psalm 142 is called a maskal of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. Most biblical scholars believe that a maskal is a musical or liturgical term which indicates how a psalm is to be sung. We don't know exactly what it means, but that's what it seems to indicate. We also get a little bit of a clue because in Amos 5.13, the Hebrew word maskal is used and is translated as prudent or having insight. And so the indication seems to be, I think about as specific as we can get, is to say that a maskal is a psalm that was to be sung or said in a certain way for the purpose of contemplating it in order to gain insight from it. And because it was part of the Psalter as as David mentioned earlier, David Davies, 
uh, the indication is that this was to be part not only of private worship, but corporate worship. God's people were to consider this psalm together, whether they sang it or sung it, uh, whether they sung it or said it, I mean, and for the purpose of contemplating it and receiving instruction for themselves from it. David's words are instructive for us as we worship the Lord corporately today, 3,000 years later. I want you to listen to his words as he cries out to God, alone and afraid in the cave. I would even encourage you to close your eyes and imagine this setting as David says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my troubles before him. When my spirit faints within me, O God, you know the way. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. As David confesses his weakness and his inability to overcome his circumstances to God, you see what happens? His confidence in the Lord is renewed. The glory of God becomes his goal. At the beginning of his prayer, his spirit is faint. But by the end of the prayer, his spirit is filled with the anticipation. We could even say expectation that God will come through for him. David confidently asserts, dare we say predicts, the righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. His fear at this point is gone and his faith in God has been restored. Now go back immediately to 1 Samuel 22 and look again at verse 1, the whole verse, along with verses 1 and 2. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And it's there that he prays, right? Psalm 142. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard of it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was embittered in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. What did David pray? What did David predict at the end of his prayer? The righteous will surround me for you will deal with bountifully with me and soon david is surrounded by his mom his dad his siblings and 400 other men who were in debt discontent the esv rightly translates the hebrew as bitter in soul the hebrew term is Na'ar nefesh, which means to be in bitterness of soul, to have been wronged and mistreated. So these were people that were looking for relief 
for one reason or another. They were looking for real change in their lives. And God brought them all to David. And he became their leader. Which is to say that God not only restored David's confidence, but God brought to him in answer to his prayer his family and 400 other people that he could influence for good. Strengthen their confidence in the Lord. Now David prays again in the cave. This time with greater confidence than the psalm we just read. Even though that concluded with confidence. You don't sense desperation. You sense only praise. With his family and new circle of friends and followers around him. David rejoices in the Lord and rallies those around him. You say, what psalm is that? It's Psalm 34 that many of us know well. But most of us probably didn't know that this was a Psalm 34, the title, notice, of David when he changed his behavior before Ahimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So David is here in the cave. I play Psalm 142 before this psalm, and the reason is this. David prays Psalm 142 when he's alone in the cave, and he ends with confidence that God will deal bountifully with him by bringing people to him, surrounding him with the righteous. Now in this psalm, David prays, and it's evident by the words of the psalm itself that there are people with him at this point. Look at Psalm 34. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Listen, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are attentive toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Note the word refuge, which occurs a few times in this psalm. 
Get what the Hebrew word adulam means. Refuge. Here in the cave of Adullam, David is reminded that the Lord is his refuge. As David prays in the cave, his confidence in the Lord is restored. He reminds himself and this ragtag bunch around him that God is their refuge. Even in their most desperate moments, the Lord doesn't let go of his servants. This was true of David. But it was proven most powerfully in the experience of David's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. David, speaking out of his own experience, makes a prophetic statement about Jesus in Psalm 34. Did you catch it? Verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is David's way of saving that, saying that the Lord has preserved his life, his whole being. His, his bones are kind of representative of, of who he is as a whole. But in John 19, the apostle notes that this prophecy was fulfilled literally in the case of Jesus when his legs were not broken on the cross of Calvary. This fulfilled not only the prophecy of David's words in Psalm 34, but also what is said from the Lord in Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 regarding the Passover lamb, that none of its bones were to be broken as the Passover lamb was killed and eaten. In John 1.29, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And in fulfillment of David's prophetic prayer, not one of his bones was broken. Jesus died when God said, in the way that God said, to fulfill God's purpose for his people. Note the similarities even in the material we cover today, note the similarities and differences between David and his greater descendant, the Lord Jesus. And let your soul just rise in worship to the Lord. David was forced to leave his home. Jesus willingly left his. Just as David was in exile, so Jesus said of himself, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. David, in his panic, resorted to deception, pretending to be insane. Jesus never panicked and never resorted to deception on any occasion, but still his own family thought he was crazy. The religious leaders accused him of having a demon, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. When the Philistines saw David's behavior, he thought he was nuts. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. David in fear went to a cave. Jesus in love went to the cross. In the time of his affliction, David cried out to God in the cave and God saved him. Likewise, we're told in the book of Hebrews that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Hebrews 5, 7. David ends up caring for all those who are in distress. Everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is discontented. And what do we read about Jesus? The greater descendant of David. We're told of Jesus that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. 
because he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. David cared for those in debt, but Jesus actually paid the debt of all those who would trust in him, paying our debt to God by dying on the cross for our sins. And just as David's band of misfits ended up becoming his mighty men, as the Old Testament narrative will reveal, so God has deliberately chosen screw-ups like us, people that are weak and foolish and often despised and at times do stupid things. And even if we don't, we're still seen as stupid in the eyes of the world. The scum of the earth, Paul says, the nobodies. God has chosen the likes of sinners like us to be his people. And the Bible assures us that God will fulfill his good purposes for us. And when all the pain and the suffering and the desperate circumstances and trials are over, by God's grace, we will come through victorious and we will reign with Christ forever and ever. Jesus declared, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So the question is, have you come to Jesus? Have you come to Jesus with all your sins and your stupidity and your foolishness and your impulsiveness and your self-reliance and say, I'm nothing without you. Oh, Jesus, how I need you. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you're the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I need forgiveness from you. From now on, I need guidance from you. I need power from you. I need peace from you. Be my Lord and Savior. Those who come to Jesus, those who truly entrust themselves to him, discover that no matter how discouraging, difficult, and desperate life gets, the Lord never lets go because his steadfast love endures forever.